Well, I would have to say that I have one of the best jobs in the world. Um, I work with some of the best people in the world, and I proclaim the best news there is to proclaim to the world. But even with all that in mind, I am not immune from having a tough day at the office. <laughs> I think even, even after we come together on Sunday and have an amazing, an amazing uh, service and time together, um, and everything goes great, and there's no glitches in anything and, and all of that, on Monday can be a very difficult time in the office. In fact, I think that for, for most pastors, the day that more resignations are written are on Monday morning after a Sunday. And then I think there are more resignations torn up on Tuesday <laughs> as they have a chance to get through all of that time. Well, tonight we're going to be looking at Psalm 18, and we're going to be talking about singing praises to God. Now, David wrote Psalm 18 right at the zenith of his um, kingly leadership. He was leading one of the most powerful nations in the, in, in the region, a nation that had the additional responsibility of being the people of God. And David knew that war was approaching from without and mutiny was approaching from within at this time in his reign. Now, if I am tempted at times to think that my job is stressful, then I have to remember that my sons haven't tried to kill me recently, like David's son's son was trying to do to him. And I don't have to lead the most stubborn, rebellious people on the planet like David had to try to lead. And so what did David pursue in order to find comfort? In order, in order to, to have faith and even joy on his most difficult and troublesome day as a king? Well, I believe that he looked back at the unchanging nature of God and he allowed his view of the world to be shaped by who God is rather than by what, would, what he would be facing in the world at that particular time in his life. And it's a helpful thing to do. And so David declared that God was his strength. He knew that God never gets tired of being strong, so David was free to be weak. Do you understand that? God never gets tired of being strong. And because he doesn't get tired of being strong, we are free to be able to be weak in our lives. Some people tell us, well, you just need to toughen up. You just need to, you just need to pull yourself up. You just need to fight through this, this discouraging time or this problem that you're having in your life or whatever it is. But when God is strong, we're free to be weak. But then also he declared that God was his rock. 
So David knew that he stood on solid ground. It didn't matter what was happening around him. It didn't matter if the foundation seemed to be crumbling underneath of him and the the wicked, the heathen, was having their way. He knew that he stood on solid ground. He declared that God was his fortress. So David knew that he was safe and secure in God's presence. Again, it didn't matter. It didn't matter that there were wars on the outside. It didn't matter that there was mutiny on the inside. It didn't matter that people didn't like him, that they wanted to get rid of him or or whatever was going on in his life because he knew that God was his fortress. But then also he declared that God was his deliverer. David knew that he would be rescued from his enemies and and, and saved from himself. Sometimes we just need saved from ourselves, don't we? Because we make, we make dumb mistakes sometimes, particularly when we find ourselves in a stressful situation or we get discouraged and, and, and we feel like everything's falling apart and we're looking at what's going on around us to find our worldview instead of focusing on God, we make some pretty dumb mistakes. And so he declared that God was his deliverer. He declared that God was his shield, so, so the, the blows and the fiery darts of the, of the accusers from the enemy, they couldn't pierce him. He was safe because God had a shield around him. He declared that God's salvation was like a horn with which he could, he could take ground. He could advance forward in the battle. He didn't didn't have to just stand back and try to defend and try to hold people off, but he he could use the gospel to assault the dark places around him. But then also he declared that God was worthy of praise. He just declared the greatness of God. So to what to what will you look? in order to shape your worldview. Will you look to your surrounding circumstances? Or will you look to your unchanging God and declare that he is, in fact, all the things that David said he was? The choices you make will determine how you get through the toughest days of your life. And so let me, just, let me just ask you a question as we begin here. Do you, do you sing? Now, I, I don't mean do you sing well enough to sing in a, in a church choir or an ensemble or anything like that. I don't mean that at all. But I mean, do you find your joy in the Lord just welling up inside of you at times, so much so that it spills over in your life and it comes out as a song? When you're alone, or even when you come together with God's people here in God's house, do you find yourself wanting to burst forth in heartfelt praises to God for who he is and what he has done for you? If you don't sing to the Lord, your prayer life is deficit. Singing praises to God, I believe, is a vital part of our prayers. 
Now, David, the man after a God's own heart, sang many of his prayers to the Lord. In fact, David composed at least half of the Psalms, which we need to remember were the, were the songs of Israel. And they weren't just read, they were sung. He was always singing. Even when he was in a cave, hiding to save his life in Psalm 57. He has much to teach us about prayer, and I believe especially about the aspect of praise in the midst of our prayers. So becoming a person of praise may not be at the top of your priority list. You, you, you've got practical problems to solve, but praise should be at the top of your list. The Westminster Shorter Catechism said that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. John Piper put just a little bit different spin on it, to glorify God by enjoying him forever. Do you enjoy God? Do you really enjoy spending time with him? Or is that a foreign idea to you? One of the main ways that we glorify God is through our praises. And the, and the brief glimpses Scripture gives us into heaven indicates that a major part of eternity will be filled with us praising God, singing praises to God, a major part of eternity. And to the extent that that activity strikes us as a bit boring then we lack understanding of the infinite perfection of God and of the tremendous joy of praising Him. We all need to become people of praise. And I am convinced that one of the main reasons that God called David a man after God's own heart was that David was a man of praise that he praised God, that he understood the holiness of God and, and how special God is and what God had done for him. So, so we could spend many messages exploring this theme, but I'm going to limit myself tonight to, to one message from David's Psalm 18. And I want to show you three things tonight that this, in this psalm about being a people of praise. So to be a people of praise, and we'll, we'll take these in order, but let me just let you know what they are, and so you'll know where we're at when they come around. But we must come to the end of ourself, number one. We must flee to God as our refuge, number two. And we must express it to him in song. So those are the three points that we're going to look at tonight. And these three elements are, are present in many of the Psalms, not just the Psalm that we're looking at tonight, but in many of the Psalms. And the Psalmist was under attack or in a difficult circumstance in his life. And in his distress, he would call out to the Lord who delivered him, leading him to have an outburst a praise in song. Whenever God delivered David, he was so overwhelmed that he would just sing praises to God. 
Now, there is both good news and bad news in, in, in this observation that we have. The good news is that the, psalm, the Psalms are intensely life-related. In other words, every emotion, every up, every down of life is reflected in the Psalms so that we can relate easily to all of the Psalms. And it, it, and it saddens my heart that, that many people do not spend time in the Psalms. I would encourage you to read the Psalms every month. Every month, read through the entire book of Psalms and through the book of Proverbs. You begin with, with chapter one on day one, and you do one, you do 31, you do 61, you do 91, and right on through. And the next day you'd start with two and 32 and, and so forth, all the way through the month. And, and then the Proverbs are one proverb a month. You'd be amazed. A day. A day, yeah. So you go through every proverb in a day and in a month you will go through the Proverbs. Thank you. So I would encourage you to do that, but many people don't read the Psalms. They don't know the Psalms. The bad news is that to become people of praise, then we've got to enroll in God's school of hard knocks. And we must advance in that school until we come to the end of ourselves. So to be a people of praise, number one, we must come to the end of ourselves. David wrote in Psalm 18, and he sang it, he wrote Psalm 18, and he sang it to the Lord, but if your Bible has kind of a um, superscription to it, it's, 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 not the, it's not the part that is inspired that we read beginning in verse 1, but it's a little caption above it. So like mine has Psalm 18, and then it has a bold letter, God the Sovereign Savior. And then it says to the chief musician, that's who David wrote it to, and all of this. But the thing that we notice there is that it says that this song, on the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of all of his enemies and from the hand of Saul. In other words, that was David letting us know who he wrote it to and why he wrote it and when he wrote it. And it was on the day that God delivered him from all of his enemies. So this probably means that David wrote this particular psalm later on in his life as he reflected back on God's faithfulness in his many troubles. It is an important, it's important enough psalm that the Holy Spirit saw fit to include it twice in the scriptures. We have it here and then with just some minor variations, you can find the same thing in 2 Samuel 22, with just some minor variations. Now, to appreciate what David had been through, you need to recall his background. David was in his late teens when he was anointed to be the next king of Israel, but he was 30 before he actually became king over at that time, just the southern part of Israel, and he was 37 before he became king over the entire kingdom, the united kingdom underneath his rule. So he was a teenager when he was anointed, and he was 37 before he was king over all of Israel. And during those years, 
God was shaping his man through adversity, putting David in situation after situation where he, he, he despaired for his very life, and he had to learn to trust God alone. And so over the decades, you remember King Saul, who was the king of Israel when David was anointed as a teenager to be the next king. King Saul pursued David over the, the, the Judean wilderness so that David said, there is hardly a step between me and death. He lived in caves. He moved constantly to avoid Saul's relentless pursuit of him. If you ever watch the movie Fugitive, you have some kind of an idea of how David felt during those years. He could never let his guard down. He could never relax. He always had to be on the alert because he never knew where Saul was going to show up next. We talk about being under stress in our lives today. But how would we like to know every day and every night that an enemy with a whole army at his disposal was trying to kill you? In Psalm 18, we don't know whether David was writing about a specific incident or just jump just lumping together his many narrow escapes from death. But in poetic language, he describes a man who is in turbulent water over his head. In verse 4, the pangs of death surround me. The floods of ungodliness made me afraid. The sorrow of Sheol surrounded me. The snare of death confronted me. Weeds our vines are wrapping around him so that he cannot break free. And in the terror of the moment, all he can think is, I'm going to die. He had come to the end of himself. And you may wonder, why would a, why would a good, loving God put a decent, clean, living young man like David in a situation after situations where he despaired of his very life? Why would God do that? After all, David was a good kid. He obeyed his father. He was, he was conscientious about taking care of his dad's sheep. He didn't get drunk. He didn't do drugs. He had more faith in God as a teenager than anybody in Saul's army so that he could kill Goliath. We're not talking about an average kid here. David was a choice young man. Now, we may hesitate to say it, but we might think that for God to treat David as he did sounds a bit cruel. But if we think that, then we don't understand God's loving ways. Because, see, whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. 
and he scourges every son whom he receives. He disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. The fact is that God didn't bring us to the end of ourselves. If he didn't bring us to the end of ourselves, we would trust in ourselves and not in God. So you see, he brings us into impossible situations where there is absolutely no human way out. And the more impossible the situation, the greater will be our praise after he has delivered us from that situation. And the endemic human cancer that God is patiently and lovingly cutting out of his people is pride. You see, since the fall, we we all suffer from the sin of pride. Even those those with so-called low self-esteem who dump on themselves all the time suffer from pride. And at the root of pride is relying on ourselves rather than God. And so pride is looking within for our sufficiency rather than looking to Christ. It is thinking too highly of ourselves and thinking too lowly of God. Pride thinks that God owes us something because of who we are or what we've been able to do with our lives. In pride, we think that our own righteousness commends us to God. Pride is putting ourselves above others, thinking that, that we're better than they are. And so everyone, everyone suffers from pride in one form or another. This is crucial because if we don't grasp it, we don't truly understand the gospel, and we can't present it clearly to those who are lost. You see, in our day, the gospel pitch often goes, well, do you need help with your problems? Do you want a, do you want a happier life than what you're living right now? Then invite Jesus into your life, and he will give you what you need. And so people proudly think that they're not too bad, who have no concept of the absolute holiness of God. And so they ask Jesus to come along into their lives and give them a little something extra so they can just get through this little bit of a rough road they're going through right now. But they have no understanding of the absolute holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. They've never been humbled to see that unless God is merciful to them, they are under his just condemnation. So I want you to note what David says over in verse 27 of chapter 18 here. David said, For you will save the humble people, but will bring down haughty looks. God has to bring affliction into our lives in order to humble our pride. And so God is opposed to the proud, Peter said in 1 Peter 5.5, but he gives grace to the humble. 
So when God humbles us so that we, we no longer trust in ourselves, then we call out to him for salvation, and he gives all and, and, and he gets all of the praise then because we know that it was all due to his grace. I had no merit in it. I was totally and utterly lost and on my way to hell, and there was no way to escape. There was no hope for me. And yet God in his mercy and grace reached down and saved me. Watchman Nee tells of a time when a group of Chinese Christian men were swimming in a river when one of the men got a cramp in his leg and he began to drown. And so Nee motioned to another man who was an expert swimmer to go to that man's aid. But to his surprise, that expert swimmer did not go. With panic, Nee and the others on the shore began shouting, Don't you see the man is drowning? Do something! Save him! But that expert swimmer stood calm and collected without making a move. Meanwhile, the drowning man's voice grew fainter and, and his efforts to try to save himself grew weaker and, and he thought to himself, I hate this man. I can't believe he's letting a brother down, allowing him to drown out there and not even willing to go rescue him. But when the victim was actually sinking with a few swift strokes. The swimmer was at his side and both were soon safely on shore. Later when Nee got an opportunity, he aired his anger. He said, I have never seen any Christian who loved his brother quite as much as you do. Or love... He said, I've never seen any Christian who loved his life quite as much as you do. Think of the distrust you would have saved that brother if you had considered yourself a little less and him a little more. But the swimmer, Nee found out, knew his business better than Nee did. He replied, had I gone earlier, he would have clutched me so fast that both of us would have gone under. A drowning man cannot be saved until he is utterly exhausted and ceased to make the slightest effort to save himself. It's a lesson that we must learn in coming to God. We cannot save ourselves. We are lost and on our way to hell. We must come to the end of ourselves and call out to God. Then when he saves us, we will sing his praises. It's also a lesson that we must, must keep on learning throughout our Christian lives. We, we are so prone to trust ourselves, but we cannot praise God while we are trusting ourselves. And the, the lower we see ourselves, the more we exalt God. And when we exalt God, we praise him. So God lovingly keeps bringing us into situations where we are helpless, where we are forced to trust 
in him alone. And that's the first lesson in Psalm 18, that to be people of praise, we must come to the end of ourself. But then secondly, to be people of praise, we must flee to God as our all-sufficient refuge. You see, to become a people of praise, we need to know, as David did, practically how to flee to God and trust Him as our refuge in the midst of intense trouble. And there are three things that will help us here. First of all, we must know who God is. We cannot trust in or flee, flee for refuge to a God that we really don't know. And the main metaphors which David used here show that he knew God in a practical and personal way. In verse 2 of, of chapter 18 here, he says, The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my strength in whom I will trust my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. A number of these metaphors recall practical incidences in David's history. In other words, David's praise celebrate actual deliverances which he and the men with him could authenticate. And you can go back through the, 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 the um, writings of, uh, of Samuel and you can see each of these, each of these instances. But note also the the the. the Possessive pronoun, my, as he applied it to God. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my strength, my shield, my salvation, my stronghold. David didn't just know about God. He knew God as his own God. And if we want to be able to flee to God as our all-sufficient refuge, then we must know him. We must know his attributes as revealed in his word. And so in times of trials, Satan in, in, invariably tries to shake our confidence in the goodness of God. That's the area he attacks. If he can, if he can cause us to doubt the goodness of God, he's going to defeat us every time. He comes alongside of us and he whispers in our ears, if God, if this God of yours is so good and if he is so powerful, then why is he letting you go through this, this horrible trial that you're going through in your life? But if we fix our mind on who God is, then we can flee to him as our refuge. But then also we must know how God acts. David, David goes on then to describe, um, to describe God's deliverance through the thunderstorms. And we see in verses 7 to 15, Then the earth shook and, and trembled. The fountains of the hills also shake and were shaken because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostril devouring fire from his mouth. Coals were kindled by it. He blew the heavens also and came down. He bowed the heavens also and came down with darkness under his feet. And he rode upon a cherub and flew. And he flew upon the wings of the wind. He made darkness his secret places. His canopy around him was dark water and thick clouds of the sky. 
From the brightness before him, his thick clouds passed with hailstones and coals of fire, and the Lord thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. He sent out his arrows and scattered the foe, lightning in abundance, and he vanquished them. And then the channels of the sea were seen. The foundation of the worlds were uncovered. At your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the uh, breath of your nostrils, This could be a poetic description to tell in general of God's awesome power in in rescuing his people. Or it could refer to an actual battle not recorded in scripture where David was about to be defeated by the powerful enemy, but in response to his prayer, God sent a thunderstorm that sent the enemy army into confusion and gave David the victory. But David didn't say, wow, I sure was lucky. (laughs) It's a good thing that thunderstorm hit just at the right moment and and defeated my enemy. What What a good day for me. No, David knew God's way of delivering his people. Most often he uses natural means, but sometimes he violates the law of nature and he uses miracles. But David was very clear that it was God who rescued him and not his own strength or his own cleverness. We see that in verses 16 to 19, and we won't take the time to read those here tonight. You can read those later, but in fact, this, this is the theme of verses 27 through 45, where we see, we see God, we see you, we see yours, that even though David used the weapons of warfare, even though he was well trained for battle, even though he fought the enemy, in all of this, it was God who was at work. Just look there. Verse 27, for you will save Verse 28, for you will light my lamp. The Lord my God will enlighten my darkness. 29, for by you I ran against the troops. By my God I can leap over a wall. Verse 30, as for God his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is proven. He is a shield. Verse 31, for who is God except the Lord? Our God, it is God who arms me. Verse 35, you have also given me the shield of your salvation, your right hand, your gentleness. You enlarge my path. 39, for you have armed me. You have subdued under me those who rose up against me. Verse 40, you have also given me the the neck of my enemies. Verse 43, you have delivered me from the striving of the people. You have made me the head of the nation. Over and over again, David gave glory to God. So without God working, David was helpless. Now, David could affirm that not only God, but also God's way is perfect in in chapter 18 and verse 30. God's, God's perfect way is to bring his people into difficult straits and to humble them so that they are forced to rely on him so that he alone gets all of the praise. God won't share his glory with anyone. 
And if we want to know God as our all-sufficient refuge so that we can flee to him in the midst of our trials in the dark days of our life so that we praise him for his salvation, then we must know who he is and how he acts. And also we must know how to trust God experientially. This wasn't just theoretical theology for David. He knew practically how to lay hold of God in these desperate situations. And there are three factors that lie behind David's trust. First was prayer. David prayed. We see that in verse 3. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from my enemy. Verse 6, in my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried out to my God, and he heard my voice from his temple. The repeated word cry shows the urgency and fervency of David's prayer. Do we describe our prayers as crying out to God. Our prayers are more fervent when we sense how needy we really are. Second was the word. The word. In, in, in verse 20, 22, um, he says, all of his ordinances were before me, and I did not put away his statues. Through God's word, we can know how God wants us to live. God's word gives us, gives us examples of others who have trusted God in incredibly difficult trials so that we can imitate their faith. If we aren't, if we aren't feeding on the word when things are relatively calm in our life, then we won't know how to trust God when calamity strikes. But third was obedience. David not only knew God's ordinance, he obeyed them. Some, some stumble over David's assertion of his own righteousness in verses 20 to 24. And on the surface, it, it, it seems to run counter to what I said earlier about humility. It sounds as if David is boasting in himself and saying that God owed him deliverance because he was such a good guy. But that is to misunderstand totally what this psalm is saying. You see, we need to understand that David isn't comparing himself with God in whose sight no one is righteous, but with his enemies who do not follow God. And there's nothing wrong with us looking at the wicked around us and saying that I, I live different than them. And it's because of what God has done in my life. Also, David is not denying his own sinfulness any more than God was denying Job's sinlessness or sinfulness when he affirmed Job's righteous life to Satan. God knew that Job had sin in his life. David acknowledges repeatedly that any, any strength that he had came from God. 
and not from himself. And you can see that in verses 28 to 36. But rather David is here affirming God's justice in vindicating his people and at the same time judging the wicked. Also David is saying what other scriptures affirm that we can have a legitimate assurance when we know that we have acted in obedience to God's word. And then, of course, finally, we, we must look beyond David to David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ, whose innocence was absolute. And God the Father rescued Jesus from the cross because of his perfect obedience. And the point is, if we cry to God in prayer, if you know what his word says about how we should live, and if we have a clear conscience that we have obeyed his word, then we're able to trust him experientially in times of trials and he will get the praise and then finally to be the people of praise we must express in song our gratitude to God for his salvation David expressed his gratitude to God by writing and singing this and many other psalms. But even if we can't write songs, and even if we can't sing well, we can express our feelings by exuberantly making a joyful noise unto the Lord. And so don't miss the intense emotion of this psalm and all of the psalms. David begins with a burst of feeling, I love you, O Lord, my strength. And then he ends with another crescendo of praise when he says in verse 46, he says, The Lord lives, blessed be my rock, let the God of my salvation be exalted. Praise, if it is genuine, involves our emotions. If you, if you don't often feel love for the Lord, for what he has done for you, Something is wrong in your spiritual life. Just as if you never feel love for your mate, something's wrong in your marriage. Now, some of you are thinking, but, but you just don't understand. I'm, I'm just not an emotional person. I'm just not. Right. All I have to do is come to your house during the fourth quarter of a close Buckeye football game when the Buckeyes are coming from behind in a close, close game, they're losing and there's a few seconds to win and they cross the finish, uh, cross the goal line in time and the time runs out and you're throwing popcorn in the air and you're full of emotions. Let's be honest. Our lack of emotions towards God just reflects the shallowness of our gratitude and our love for Him. That's plain and simple what it is. If we have no emotions for God, there's something definitely wrong in our spiritual life. Let me close just with a few practical things that can help you to grow towards becoming a man or woman of praise. Number one, read the Psalms. Read the Psalms over and over and over again. It's no accident that it is the longest book in the Bible. God will use it to show you how to praise Him in the midst of the trials of life. 
write some of the some of the praise sections on a card and and have them there in your car or in front of the mirror or wherever it is that you can look at them and rehearse them and read them over and allow it to saturate your mind and like I said read the Psalms every month for the rest of your life just make that commitment I am going to read the Psalms through every month for the rest of my life I'm telling you it will change your life number two learn the great hymns of faith learn the great hymns of faith if you don't know them get a CD where you, can, where, where, where you can sing along with them over and over and over and over again until you can sing them without even looking at the words. Most of us have been Christians long enough, we should be able to sing some of the great hymns of the faith without even looking at the words. Now, you know that I, there's a lot of modern praise choruses and modern hymns that I enjoy singing, but the hymns... The old hymns of the faith often have solid theology and they link us to those who have gone on before us. Luther, Martin Luther. There, there, there's a lot of things about some of these guys that I might not fully agree with, but Martin, Martin Luther stood against the powerful wickedness of the Pope by singing hymns like, A mighty fortress is our God. He wasn't afraid of the Pope. Charles Wesley used hymns like, And Can It Be, to teach theology to illiterate working people in the 18th century of England. Hudson Taylor was sustained through the grief of burying his beloved Miria by singing his favorite, Jesus, I am resting, resting in the joy of what thou art. I am finding out the greatness of thy loving heart. Learn the stories behind the hymns. How they came about. And when you come to worship, block out distractions and focus on what you're here to do. And if that means that we have to leave our cell phones in the car at home, then we need to leave our cell phones at heart, car at home. Apathy in worship is sin. I find it helps to prepare my heart before the worship service. To come in here anticipating to meet with God, to worship Him, to lift Him up, to praise Him, to walk out of here rejoicing because I've met with God. And then I have a deliberate concentration on the words that are being spoken and the songs that are being sung. And I sang them to him. And I don't care what others think about my worship. They shouldn't be thinking about me anyways. I want, I want to offer to God the heartfelt praise that he is due for being such a great and wonderful Savior. Some of you tonight might be in the midst of a difficult trial. If you will come to the end of yourself and flee to God as your all-sufficient refuge and then express your gratitude to him in song, 
then you'll be on your way to becoming a person of praise, a person after God's own heart. Let's pray.